Well, as Marie mentioned, today is Reformation Day, 104 years ago, I think. I'm not very good at math. Yeah, July, uh, October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed, like she said, her, the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And uh, from his teachings, we, really, we get the, uh, the, the four solas, which is by faith alone we're saved, by God's grace alone we're saved. Scripture alone is sufficient uh, for authority and through Christ alone is our salvation found. And if I had been thinking ahead and planned ahead, I could preach on the four solas, but I didn't, So, because uh, I'm a creature of habit. And so we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, because uh, that's where we went. But actually today's scripture uh, uh, touches on several of those points of the four solas. So uh, Cindy and I, uh, my wife and I, we've known, a, there's a couple that we've known for over 20 years uh, in, our, in our life together, Cindy and I's life together, and, and oftentimes when we're back in the U.S., we'll stay with them. And uh, one of the things that, that this couple really enjoys playing is board games, especially the guy. And one reason why the, the man in the group, who's of course called Fred, uh, loves to play board games is because he enjoys rules. Have you ever met a person that actually enjoys the rules? He does. Uh, he finds the rules to be kind of an, uh, an interesting thing because he, he especially likes, and this, is, this isn't just trying to curry favor with uh, the locals here, he especially likes German board games. Uh, Ravensburger are his, is his favorite publisher of board games because we're not talking about Monopoly or Candyland. You know, these are complicated but, but fun games once they kind of roll along and you get used to them, and he loves these things. And he also likes, he's kind of a, a fan of all things German. When they visited uh, Germany, they, stayed, they visited with us for a while. He loves the language. He's very disappointed in me, uh, having been here 10 years and, and how poor my German is. Uh, and I ask him, how can you love this German language? He loves the rules. Uh, he's just fascinated with the, the rules of the whole thing. And I've never really met a guy like that, that enjoys living life uh, very much by rules because he finds them intriguing. He likes to figure them out. In fact, before he married his wife, who is a devout Catholic, his wife is Catholic, he was Mormon. And, uh, and I have to say, his wife kind of embodies all the positive aspects of Catholicism with none of the downside. She's very, she has all those fruits of the Spirit that you would expect to see in a believer. But I asked him one time, how did, how did this change impact his life when he went from being Mormon which is very rules-driven as well, to Catholicism, which is way rules-driven. I said, how did that, you know, I was expecting some kind of spiritual answer. How did this impact your life? And you know what he said? This is no joke. He just said, it's just a different set of rules. And that's kind of how he approaches his faith, because he's actually involved in the Catholic Church, because his wife, who's kind of more of a believer from the heart, uh, he goes, you know, he, he loves her, so he's going to join with her. He teaches catechism in the, in the Catholic Church because he enjoys teaching about the rules. And in the passage that we're reading today, it has a short teaching and then a longer teaching about faith and trust and rules. And, uh, and so let's go ahead and start looking at that. We're in Matthew chapter 19, for those of you who like to follow along in your scriptures. And we're starting on verse 13. And it says this. We'll read through it, then we'll discuss it. It says, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. And Jesus said, 
Oh, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. To rebuke means to, to not just say don't do that, but to say don't do that because it's wrong. It's kind of a stronger word, rebuke. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbors yourself. Well, all these I've kept, the young man answered. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give, it to, the, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Religion and rules. Very often where you find one, you find the other. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's, you can't really have religion without some sort of rules because religion is, by definition, a system of belief. Even at, at IBCD, when we go through discovering IBCD with new people who are thinking of joining the church, we have something we call the seven essentials of belief. And these are the seven things that, that we need to be in agreement on if we're going to be moving together as a body in Christ. And, it's, and they're pretty simple. It's the nature of the Father, the nature of the Son, the nature of the Holy Spirit, the nature of humanity, the nature of sin, the Scripture, and eternity. And so we, if we're in agreement on these seven things, those, we consider those our seven essentials. It's not really the same as rules, but we do have you know, certain expectations as a body, as IBCD, if we're going to be in unity together. But a lot of what we call works-based faith is really about tangible things that you can do that earn you points in order for you to go to heaven. And for some of us that, that have never really grown up in a works-based faith, sometimes it's hard to, get, to understand the perspective of works-based because we really never lived in it. And on the, same, on the flip side, those who grew up in works-based faith, works-based religion, have a very hard time understanding grace because it's just not what they've grown up in. Or they've heard grace defined in such a way that it's really just about more works. And why is this? Why do people enjoy rules in their religion? 
Well, I think a lot of people feel like if they can keep the rules, then they're validated in their faith. They feel like they are on the side of right. And you have a tangible way of pointing to, to yourself and to what you've done and saying, this places me on the side of right. And we like that. We like to feel that we're validated. We like to feel like we are secure in our faith because we have kept a certain set of rules. In rules, we trust. And if the rules didn't mean anything, then keeping them wouldn't mean anything. So when you start to challenge someone who comes from a, a works-based background, if you start to challenge their rules, they'll often get quite defensive because you are challenging the thing in which they put their faith. And this is an important thing to understand, that for many people, placing trust in the effectiveness of the rules and placing trust in the meaning of the rules is what faith means to them. You, get, you understand that? This for workspace? Faith means that the rules are effective. Faith means that if I put my trust in the rules, then I will be carried through to wherever I'm hoping to go. So faith isn't in a person. Faith is in the rules. Faith isn't in Christ so much as it is in, in the things that it looks like Christ promotes. And this is where the line becomes really fuzzy with Christians who come from more of a works-based background like Catholicism because they'll talk very much about Jesus and they will talk in terms of great adoration toward Jesus. And there is no, I don't think there's any lie in that. I think there's a lot of adoration towards Jesus in, like, in some of these Christian beliefs that have more works to it. But where their faith is really placed is in the rules or in, the, or in what uh, takes place through the priest instead of in Christ. And when Jesus, in this passage, talks about rules, he, there's, two, there's, two shorts, there's two stories here. The first one is very quick, and it's very simple. The other one is more complex. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are called the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of run in parallel. The gospel of John is its own thing. It's kind of a unique, it's kind of filling in the gaps of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why most scholars think John was written well after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because it is, it's its own thing. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke very often run in parallel, and it's clear that they borrowed from each other. And there's debate, you know, which, who borrowed from whom. Most scholars think Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke borrowed from Mark. But there's some thought, did Matthew also borrow from Luke or Luke from Matthew? That's kind of a place of, you know, people debate because they want to get their Ph.D., right? It's really not that important to us. But this is, this is one of these kind of theological debates that go on. It's not even theological. It's textual criticism more than anything else. And criticism in a good way, not a bad way. So let's look at the first part. Jesus, this is, a, this is kind of the first and simple uh, teaching that Jesus begins when he talks about this area of trust in him, not trust in rules. It says, little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them, probably because back in this time, children were kind of seen and not heard. They weren't really supposed to get involved in adult stuff. So when they start coming to Jesus, the disciples tell the, tell the people to keep their kids to themselves. But Jesus says, no, let them come to me. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he placed his hands on them, and then he went from there. Now, if you look in the Gospel of Luke, he also adds this little... Uh, uh, sentence that Matthew doesn't include. That's why it's good to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke very often in parallel because you'll, you'll get the full story because they add in things. Matthew, Mark, and Luke will often focus on different aspects within the same story. 
And Luke points out to Jesus, says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So again, we see here a fairly simple teaching, right? The children come to Jesus. The disciples say, stay away. Like, this, is not, this is adult business, not children's business. This is the place for sophisticated thinking, not childish thinking. And Jesus says, no, let them come. And when he says, because, and he gives the reason. If anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What is he saying there? Well, he's, he's talking about these little children. They don't know all the rules. They're not religiously sophisticated yet. Or you might say religiously bound down yet. They just come because they trust. And that's what Jesus is pointing at. He's saying these children don't know all the rules of righteousness when it comes to the law of Moses. But they just simply trust. And this is what adults have to do. You have to trust in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you can trust like a child, then you'll never enter. And then he goes into, then all the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the same pattern. They talk about this one with the children. Then they go into this much more sophisticated story. And it's the story about the rich young ruler. And so let's take, let's take a look at that now. So it goes, it, takes, it goes from the simple understanding of, well, you have to trust like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven, to a man that is very much like any one of us who's an adult, who's sophisticated in his thinking, and is very rule-driven. And it says, Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good things must I do to get eternal life? Now Jesus being Jesus, he's, he, he would sometimes ask questions back or he would respond in a way that doesn't really directly seem to affect where the person is at, with the question the person is asking. And Jesus does the same thing here. Oh, he begins. He says, Why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. And that's not even where this guy was coming from, but Jesus is just pointing out this idea of goodness first because he's trying to point out that good is not on a sliding scale of relativity. You're relatively good, you're relatively bad. To Jesus, good is, is either you are or you're not. There is no sliding up and down. You either are good or you're not good. And he says the only one who's truly good is God. Why? Because there's no sin in him. So he's truly good. And Jesus will often kind of throw this out because people just throw out the word good like they throw out the word love. They don't really, throw, they don't really use it at the depth that it's meant to. And, and this is one of the words that Jesus will come back on more than once in the, in the Gospels. Why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. And then, he's, then he goes on and says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. But, and, and it's almost like Jesus is kind of sort of giving this guy sort of a, 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 a the brush off at first. You know, why you call me good? There's only one that's good. If you want to have eternal life, obey the commandments. But this young guy, he sticks to his guns. He wants to know more. He says, which ones? And it's interesting that when Jesus replies, he replies only about commandments that deal with other people. He doesn't say anything about idolatry. He doesn't say about keeping the Sabbath. Look what he says. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments that Jesus runs through this, to this guy have to do with other people. Now, this is a very good example of something I've talked about before, and, and it's, it's important to understand if you want to get where Jesus is coming from. When people would ask Jesus a question from an Old Testament context, before the cross and before the resurrection, Jesus would answer them from an Old Testament context. And we've, I've given you several examples over the, over the years where Jesus does this. Someone asks him, like the Pharisees would ask him about a law question, he would answer from an Old Testament context. 
Now, when he talked about divorce, if you remember, the Pharisees would talk from the law of Moses context. Jesus would respond from the heart of God context. But it was always this Old Testament context. The one I always use all the time, for you, and you, you're probably used to it by now, is, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbors yourself. But then Jesus back ends that by saying, in this, the law and the, and the prophets are fulfilled. So it's an Old Testament answer to an Old Testament question. That's what he's doing to this guy. This guy is asking him from an Old Testament context. What do I have to be good, do to be good? And Jesus answers from an Old Testament context. Keep the commandments. All right? Because sometimes Christians read this and go, oh, should we still be keeping the commandments? And you have to understand how he's approaching things here. And then in this passage, he switches over to new, to, to, uh, new kingdom thinking. We talked about that last last week, and you'll see it happen. But that's how he approaches this guy first. He approaches him because this guy is saying, what are the commands I have to keep? Basically, what's the law I have to keep? Jesus answers him from a pre-cross, pre-resurrection, Old Testament context. But this guy is interesting. He's deeper. He's not just about rule-keeping. And so he keeps pressing in, and he says, all these I have kept, the man said. What do I still lack? And it's interesting that in the Gospel of Mark, there's a little comment in there that says, Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Jesus saw that there was in this young guy a deeper desire to know God. That this guy wasn't just about keeping rules. This is just how he understood his faith. But Jesus could see that this guy had a deeper heart. So he answers him in a deeper way. And this guy says, it's interesting, he says, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. I think this character is one that a lot of us can relate to, you know, because I know, I know because I've had this conversation over the years with many people that people wonder or they ask, is this the standard? Should I sell everything I have, give it to the poor in order to really be saved? And it's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, he's, Matthew's the only one, like I say, you should read these in parallel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew's the only one that really focuses on this word perfect, if you want to be perfect. Luke and Mark, they, sell, they, they say, you know, you need to sell everything, give to the poor, and then come follow me. It's only Matthew that, 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 that says, if you want to be perfect, then you need to do these things. Because perfection is kind of the goal of people who like to keep rules. Have you ever noticed that people who are, are perfectionists and rule keepers in their life, you know, they, they want this perfection. They want to be able to say they are 100% right. They are firmly within the box, right in the middle of the box. They don't want to be living outside the box. You know, we hear that a lot. You know, oh, we've got to think outside the box. Rule keepers are like, uh-uh, I want in the box, right in the middle, equal distance from every, every end of the, of the line, right? I am a perfectionist. And so Jesus touches on this guy, if you want to be perfect, because he knows this guy wants to be perfect, right? Because he's asking him these things. And when Jesus says, do all these commands, he says, I've done that, but what do I lack? What's the thing that I'm lacking? Because I think somewhere in his spirit, because this person was a sincere seeker of truth, he knew something was lacking. So Jesus says, all right, if you want to be perfect, 
then place all your trust in me instead of in your rules, and in this guy's case, instead of in your wealth. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Then you'll be perfect. And of course, the young man says, well, he just walks off. And it says in the scriptures uh, that you know, he goes away sad because he has great wealth. And Jesus even, uh, you know, there, there's a sense in Jesus that he's kind of like, ah, you're that close. And then he begins to have this conversation with his, his disciples. And we'll go into that a little bit more. But the question I think a lot of us need to ask ourselves, and this is what the scripture challenges us in, is what are we willing to give to be found perfect in our relationship with Christ? What are you willing to give to be found perfect in your relationship with Christ? And do you stress out about being found perfect in your relationship with Christ? Because this is where the rules and grace begin to come into conflict with each other. And I think we often read this story, we think about it as someone that lost out on his salvation because of the love for money. And that may be kind of legitimate. But I think the story is really about trust. How far are you really to trust Christ. And I think that we find this person intriguing because we've asked this question of ourselves. Whenever you read the scripture, I don't know how you can read it and not ask the question of yourself. Is this the standard of perfection that I need to put into my life? Because I can tell you that I've devoted my life to following Christ. I've, it's defined my career, it's defined my family, it's defined how I've lived, but I haven't sold all that I have and given it to the poor. So am I lacking? And the truth is, maybe I really don't want to be perfect if this is what perfection means. And I think this is the struggle we have in following Christ. We say we want to follow Christ, but then when we're given a challenge that really hits us where our heart is, like this young man, the challenge he was given hit him where his heart was, which was his wealth, then the question becomes, okay, do we get all excited in some kind of worship service and we're raising our hands and we're singing, we're going, Lord, I'll give you anything. And Jesus says, okay, empty the bank account, give it to the poor and follow me. Are we like, yes, Lord? Or are we like, oh, really? And like the discussion about divorce, when he says this, when he turns to his disciples and says this, he says, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that it's easier... For a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples were once again astonished. They had just been astonished before when Jesus talks about divorce and saying the only grounds for divorce is adultery. And they're like, if that's the case, it's better not to marry at all. And now he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to go into heaven. And they look at him. They look at him like these guys. They're like, what? They're astonished. How is it possible to do this? And then Jesus says to them, of course, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Well, what does that mean? That's kind of a vague kind of answer to all this. You know, how is it, how, how is it possible for rich men? Jesus goes, well, with man, it's impossible. For God, it's possible. It's easy to kind of write this off as just kind of some, you know, kind of Yoda-like teaching. You know, it sounds like it's wisdom, but it's hard to get your hands on what this means, right? But Peter thinks he understands it. Good old Peter Peter's always there, and he's like, I get this. And he says, we've left everything to follow you. See, the light bulb goes on. Peter's like, aha, I am validated by my faith. And my faith has been validated because I have left everything to follow you. Woohoo! I'm perfect. 
What then will there be for us? And now Jesus switches over to New Kingdom's talking, New Kingdom imagery. Because look what he says. He says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things. So now Jesus is talking post-cross, post-resurrection, the, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. He switches here now. He's not talking from an Old Testament context. Now he's speaking from a New Testament context. But the reason why the disciples still can't get it is because the cross has yet to happen. The resurrection has yet to happen. But Jesus doesn't even worry about that. He just goes right to this, the New Testament way of thinking. He says, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, so when he's fully revealed, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not going to get into what that, that means in detail because I'm not quite sure myself. Because is Judas part of that? Because at the time, Judas is alive. Is he one of the ones that will judge the 12 tribes? There's a lot of questions in that, in that there. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Then he ends with this sentence. And this is an important sentence because the next story he tells is a parable. And the parable begins with this sentence, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Then he tells a parable which he ends with this same sentence. Many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And we're going to look at that next week, the parable. So I've referred to a lot of this as this pre-cross, pre-resurrection teaching. And that's significant to understand. It's significant for you to understand as you're reading this, that the, that the rich young ruler is coming at Jesus from a perspective which is different than the ones of grace. It's different from grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, and Christ alone. You come from a perspective of what Luther his te- he never actually said the solas, but his teaching has been distilled down into the solas of by grace alone you're saved, by, the faith, by faith alone you're saved, the scripture alone is the authority, and through Christ alone is salvation made possible. Those four solas are where, are the, is the context of, of your faith. You don't have the context of Old Testament law. You know about the Old Testament law, but you don't live by the Old Testament law. You live by faith in Christ. And it's important to make this distinction when you read the Bible to understand that our expectations should not be the same as someone coming to Jesus from an Old Testament context. In other words, you're not in the same place as the Pharisees who asked Jesus questions or this guy who is asking Jesus questions. You are in a place of faith through grace, through Christ, and Christ alone. You're not in the place of trying to follow the law, or at least you shouldn't be. But our nature always wants to go back to rules. It's just the way we are. But we do not get off easily. And this is important to understand. Like I say, oh, you're from the grace and you're from the faith perspective. But understand that within that grace and faith perspective, we are also called to give up not just our wealth. We're not called to give up things outside of ourselves. We're called to give up ourselves. And this is a challenge. Again, Jesus is using New Testament language when he speaks, when he, when he shares this particular passage. And it's one that's hard for the old, you know, it'd be hard for the disciples to understand at the time what he's talking about. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, you probably understand what that means because you live in the post-resurrection of Christ. You know that the cross was the place of death. 
And to take up the cross means that you have to die to yourself daily in order to follow Christ. You set yourself aside so that the Spirit of God can lead you in your life and you follow Him. This is what it means to take up your cross daily and follow Him. The people listening to Him before the cross when He said this, this is one reason why the disciples, even right up to the time when Jesus is crucified, don't really get what's going on. This would not make sense to them. Because they were thinking from the law perspective, and, and what's taking up your cross and following him have to do with it? Why, why is he talking about death? Why is he talking about an instrument of torture? We understand it because we're on this side of the cross. We see what Jesus went through, that he was in fact crucified on a cross, that that cross is the place through which he died for our sins so that we can live by faith in his sacrifice for our sake. He says, forever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. So we're not called to give up wealth. We're not really called to give up careers. We're called to give up ourself, our rights to ourself, that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he rules within our life. That is the calling. And on one hand, I think that we can nod to this and say, okay, I can get that. I can get behind that because death to self is kind of a, it's an abstract concept. What does it mean to die to self? If I were to ask you in this room, what does it mean to die to self? I'd probably get a slightly different answer from each one of you. Especially if I took you in isolation and asked you and you couldn't hear what other people were saying. What does it mean to die to self? It's an abstract concept. And I think in some ways, that's why we find it easier to take because it's hard for us to get our, our, our hands on it. If we were to say, you have to sell everything you have, empty out your bank account, give it to the poor, that's hard because that's concrete. There's no kind of, well, it could mean this or it could mean that about it. It means what it means. That's law. That's rules. And so this becomes a struggle because, you know, how do we live this thing out? How do we live out death to self and life to Christ? And this is one of many passages that deal with this concept. And in IBCD, we illustrate it in our baptism. That's why when we, bury, when we baptize people, we bury them into the waters, that's death to self, representing that, and then we raise them up as a symbol of resurrection and new life in Christ. And we're able to do this, and we're able to, to share this, this, this picture of what Christ does for us because of his sacrifice, because of the power of his blood to cleanse us from our sin. He's the final sacrifice once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God and to story. And it's understanding that and embracing that and allowing that truth to transform your life is, part of, is, is one definition of what it means to die to self. Sometimes I think people think that dying to self means you have no more fun, you have no more personal ambitions, you have no more dreams. You just, yeah, life is over. Praise the Lord. You're just waiting to die and go to heaven and I hope that's better than this. That's not what it means. Jesus said, I came that you have life and you would have it abundantly. You can have a career, you can have dreams, you can have ambitions, but they have to be submitted to Christ. And if Christ says, that dream and ambition is not one that I want you to have, like I want to become a world-class poker player and gamble for a living, and Christ would tell me anyways, that's not really for you. You know? But it doesn't, but it doesn't mean no fun, but it does mean Everything is submitted to Christ. Everything. And so the questions for Christians, and this is one we've struggled with for centuries, 
Do you want to stay in the place of being gracefully forgiven by God, understanding that you are imperfect, so it is impossible for you through rules to ever enter into the kingdom of heaven? With man, this is impossible. And accept for yourself God's possibility through Jesus Christ. Because that is the only way that we will ever be found perfect in the eyes of God is if we're covered by the righteousness and perfection of Christ. You will never be able to keep enough rules to be perfect. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven, and it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a perfectionist to be perfect enough to go to heaven. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible because God has opened up the way by giving us the way, the truth, the life through Jesus Christ. And by following him, we are credited for his righteousness. You hear me say this all the time. We are credited for his perfection. We are credited and counted as the princes and princesses of the universe because we are in Christ. And that word, in Christ, is important. Think of yourself like a page in the book of life. You're in Christ. And your story now belongs to the story of Christ. And the story of Christ is one where he died for our sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And it's in this place of knowing that we are perfected, not because of our deeds, but because of what God has done, that we can then seek to grow and take chances and take risks in our faith and to know that we are in this place of grace. And you don't have to be right every time about everything you say or do. You are already credited as righteous. It doesn't mean that if you sin, you don't go, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. You still have this personal relationship, but you're protected. You're protected by the grace and the righteousness of Christ. And I think as Christians, it's important for us to understand that we are still on a journey toward perfection, even though we have to we know that we in our own self won't get there because this is just my own personal belief, but I don't think the reward system that's talked about in the Scripture is literally about gold and having a big house. I think it's more about the focus of Christ in this life somehow manifesting itself in eternity, but I don't know what that all means. You know, I have lots of questions just like you do. Like when someone goes to heaven, say they never really develop in their faith, do they continue to then grow as a being as a conscious being in heaven, and then they can kind of grow out of being a baby Christian into something more? Or a Christian, are they going to always be kind of infants in faith? I don't, I don't think so. So then what does it mean to devote your life to Christ here? What is that reward? That's a, that's a deep question. That's kind of one to talk about, but we have to admit that's speculation because none of us has been there and come back and said, hey, this is what I got. I don't know how everything all works out, but I do know this. How we live this life matters. And how you live your life matters. It matters now. It will matter for eternity. And the best way to live it is to live it with the one who created us, who sacrificed for us, and who has a long-term plan for us. And that is Christ and Christ alone. So as you walk through this, Understand that you are in a different place than the rich young ruler. You're in a different place than the Pharisees when they ask their questions. You are on the side of the resurrection. You are in the new kingdom. And in that kingdom, it's not about keeping rules to perfection. It's about following the perfect one. And by following the perfect one, and you gain credit for his perfection, 
then you can say, in Christ, you have been found perfect. Hang on to that. Trust in that. Let that be a place of safety when you are wondering, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm making this decision, and I think the Lord is leading me here, but, you know, some of us want to be 100% sure about everything. Well, that's not faith, is it? Faith is knowing God and moving in His direction. And if you, if you find that this isn't working out, this isn't right, you're under the umbrella of grace and righteousness. Don't be afraid. Just get back on track. And trust that the love of God, you will never be separated from the love of God. Paul writes in Romans, that neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, neither the past or the future, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Trust in that instead of rules and instead of yourself. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the uh, teachings that are in your word that are amazing to think that they're as old as they are and yet they're still so relevant to our lives. And they're asked questions to our souls today, which were similar questions that were asked thousands of years ago. As human beings, we're still pretty much the same, just with more technology. But Lord, we do acknowledge and we're thankful that we live post-cross and post-resurrection, that we can look back upon your death and your sacrifice for us from a, from a place that can come to some understanding as to what that was all about, what your crucifixion was about, what the resurrection was about, and we're thankful for that. Personally, I'm thankful that I'm not in the position and never have been in the position of believing that rules save me. And Lord, I want to pray for our brothers and sisters who have grown up in that system or systems like that, be they Christians who grew up in these works-based, rule-based systems, or, or non-Christians that have grown up in these rule-based systems, Lord, that you would bring them to an understanding that perfection is found not in who they are, but in who you are. And that by following you and by embracing what you have offered us as the final sacrifice for sin, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, you have exchanged our filthy rags for your glorious covering. And may we have trust in that. May we have trust in you. And Lord, I also want to just pray for those who are struggling in places of fear because of COVID and because of all the stuff going on in the world today, Lord, that they would also understand that within that place of righteousness and perfection, they do not have to be in a place of fear anymore. Like Marie said so eloquently, even if this body fails us, our eternity is already assured in Christ. May we live as people who believe that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.